Hi, welcome back to Bullet Points. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Joseph Bloker, professor of law at Duke University and expert on Second Amendment law, who has published articles in numerous leading law journals, including the Stanford and Harvard Law Reviews and the Duke Law Journal. He received his JD in law from Yale University and authored the book, The Positive Second Amendment, which is a fantastic analysis of the history and interpretation of the Second Amendment. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Dr. Bloker. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm looking forward to the conversation. So just jumping right into it, you wrote about how there's a lot of misconceptions concerning the Second Amendment. Speaking very generally, what is the Second Amendment and why was it included in the Bill of Rights? Yeah, you know, it's funny, even to answer that question is going to involve, is going to lead me into some, you know, contested territory. But one thing I think we can say at least um, simply about the Second Amendment is that it is the 27 words that constitute the Second Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Um, the, the language, at least, I think is familiar to most. Uh, it is a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Now that was proposed, the states ratified along with the first 10 amendments of the Constitution, what we call the Bill of Rights in 1791. Your se the second part of your question, though, is very contested, um, which is why was it included? Why was it proposed? Um, traditionally, there were sort of two schools of thought on this um, about, the, about which scholars and lawyers and judges would, uh, would disagree, especially over the past few decades. And they sort of looked like this. There was one, um, which we could call the militia-based view, um, which would suggest that the Second Amendment was included to protect the state's militias from being disarmed by the federal government which might sound like a strange concern, I think, to sort of modern ears. But it's worth remembering that in the late 1700s, the whole notion of creating this massive new centralized federal government was to many people quite terrifying, right? The, we'd been governed by the Articles of Confederation. The colonies were basically operating like separate governments. There were separate governments, separate sovereigns that had their own you know, military forces. And the idea of creating a standing army like that would, you know, that would be associated with the federal government, not with any particular state, was to many people quite terrifying. We had just fought a revolutionary war against a centralized government with a standing army. So one school of thought is that the second amendment was put there to preserve the state's abilities to have their own militias as kind of a counterweight to this new federal standing army. Right? Now that's the view that prevailed in scholarship and in law for really two centuries at least. Um, that you know every court to consider, well, almost every court to consider the question, most scholars writing on the question, all thought the Second Amendment had to do with protecting what we might call the sort of organized militia. But starting really especially the 1950s, 60s, 70s, and really by the 80s and 90s, a view had started to become more popular, which is that. Actually, the amendment is there not to protect these organized militias, but rather to protect what we might call the general militia, that being all people, at the time it would have been actually only white men of a certain age, but in, in theory, all of the people um, uh, uh, and their ability to have guns in order to be able to serve in the militias, but also for private purposes, like, for example, self-defense against criminals. So the second view, we could call the private purposes view. Um, and then uh, at least as of today, that is the dominant view, both in sort of public understanding and in law, that the Second Amendment is not just about the militia. Um, it's not even 100% clear what the organized militia are anymore. We still have National Guard, but you know, what, what really are they? Um, for most people today, gun rights feel like self-defense rights or sort of an auxiliary to self-defense rights. And in a very, very big case uh, in 2008, that's the view that the Supreme Court adopted. The case was called District of Columbia versus Heller, and Justice Scalia wrote, uh, wrote the majority opinion. So that was a long-winded answer, but those are the two the sort of competing views, the, the, the militia-based view and the, and the private purposes view.
Gotcha. Um, so now moving on to the less contested, more just wrong areas, what are some major misconceptions concerning the Second Amendment? Yeah, that's a great one. And here too, and there's going to be lots of contested things, but I can say at least one thing that to me is, is a common misconception is that, that the Second Amendment does not permit any forms of gun control. So you sometimes hear people say things like, um, I oppose gun control because I believe in the Second Amendment, or you know, I support um, gun control because I oppose the Second Amendment, as if you have to choose between a right to keep and bear arms and any form of gun regulation. And that's really just a false dichotomy. That's a false choice. Um, the Second Amendment, like all constitutional rights, uh, permits some forms of regulation, just like you can be held liable for certain things that you say, uh, despite the guarantee of freedom of speech, you can be held liable for certain kinds of ownership or use of guns uh, under the Second Amendment. And that has been true really throughout all of American history. And it's a very common misconception, I think, that gun regulation is like a brand new thing and that the framers were all about gun rights, but they would not have tolerated any kind of uh, any kind of gun regulation. And I think that that really is a, a fundamental misconception that constitutional rights don't operate like sort of absolutes across the board. There's always some sort of room for uh, room for regulation. So, you know, that's where things get hard is figuring out like which kinds of regulation are okay and which ones are not. They certainly take off the table some forms of regulation, um, but you know, what kinds is the hard question. What about, you know, guns denying, uh, sorry, laws denying guns to people who've been convicted of felonies. Those are popular. What if it's a nonviolent felony? Or what if it's a misdemeanor, which uh, itself is violent? Like in many states, um, spousal abuse is not a felony, but most people think it's okay to take away guns from people who commit that form of misdemeanor. What about people with mental illness? What about people under the age of 18? Like those are where, where all the hard questions are. So I think the misconception is thinking that the second amendment answers all that, when really what it does is kind of make those questions relevant. So speaking historically, how have those questions, you know, been treated historically and what are some examples of gun regulations that have been historically enacted? Yeah, this, this is this is one I have to, um, uh, if I can, plug actually a, a free online resource that we host here at Duke uh, called the, um, the Repository of Historical Gun Laws. Um, we spent a few years just collecting examples of historical gun laws really from before the founding up until 1934, which is when the first major federal gun laws started to be adopted. And there's something like 1500 examples of laws in, uh, in that repository, which you know, anybody who's listening can just pop online, search. Um, we can, you can divide it up by state or by subject, or by era or whatever else. And if you do, uh, you'll see there's just a wide, wide, wide range of gun regulations, um, some of which would feel familiar today, like, gun, like regulations on um, what the courts sometimes call dangerous and unusual weapons. Um, you know, what counts as a dangerous and unusual weapon has changed over the years. Um, you know, what, what kinds of people are regarded as dangerous uh, has changed over the years. We were talking earlier about, you know, felons and people convicted of domestic violence today, disarmed under federal law. At the time of the founding, um, people convicted of domestic violence certainly wouldn't have been because it wasn't a crime in most places, right? So there's been major changes, um, uh, you know, as far as like what the actual categories are. But you, if you look at the sweep of it, you'll find just a really wide range of laws designed to further public safety, uh, designed to keep guns out of the hands of people regarded as either dangerous or unvirtuous or untrustworthy. 
Um, some of those are restrictions which we would rightly reject today. Some of them were based on race, for example, um, and that's obviously unconstitutional and morally you know, reprehensible. Um, but some were not. They're just the, pre the, the sort of predecessors of the kinds of gun regulation we have today. Regulations on concealed carrying have a very, very long history, which actually um, in many ways originates in places you might not expect, places like the South, um, which have a very broad sort of gun culture today, um, but where concealed carrying was regarded as sort of unmanly, dastardly. If you're going to carry a gun, you should do it openly. Um, so really led the way in prohibiting concealed carry. And the other thing I, I guess I would say is that you'll see in the history a really stark division between the way guns are regulated in cities and in rural areas. So historically, um, we have regulated guns much more stringently in urban areas. Um, and you can imagine the reasons for that, you know, higher population density, this actually is where most violent crime happens, whereas, and has always been that way, whereas in rural areas, you know, there are more, frankly, reasons one might need or want to have a gun, whether it be for hunting and recreation, which is not really possible in an urban area with a gun, um, but also for self-defense, because if you're in a rural area, you can't really count on police response, even to the degree you could in a city. So there's these sort of divisions um, uh, uh, as well, sort of differences, but yeah, gunpowder regulations, you know, um, uh, surety bonds. There's all kinds of like these interesting, like sort of old sounding words, something called the Statute of Northampton, which goes back to early 1300s, where, um, you know, it's prohibiting people from carrying weapons in, in front of the king's ministers. I mean, it's really a, an interesting, fascinating, deep uh, historical historical dive. Wow, I had no idea that how, how deep that went. Um, you mentioned DC versus Heller earlier. What are some implications of that relatively recent decision and also the uh, accompanying McDonald versus Chicago decision? And what impact have, had, have those had on the interpretation of the Second Amendment? Yeah, and I should say maybe by way of full disclosure that I was one of the attorneys who participated in District of um, uh, Columbia versus Heller. Um, it, uh, I represented the district that is defending the constitutionality of the law that the district had on the books, which at the time with a very few, you know, basically irrelevant exceptions made it impossible for someone to legally own a handgun within the District of Columbia. So that was challenged as a violation of the Second Amendment. And um, sort of echoing the conversation we had earlier about these sort of two different visions of the Second Amendment, right, the one based on the militias and then the one based on sort of the personal private right. The question before the court was, well, which one of those is it? Is it is the Second Amendment about organized militias or is it about the general militia, the personal private right? Up until 2008, when Heller was decided, there's not a single federal court case anywhere in the United States striking down a gun regulation on Second Amendment grounds, which is just kind of extraordinary, right? For basically 220 years, the amendment as a matter of law, as a matter of doctrine, did nothing. Right? There were no laws found to be unconstitutional under the Second Amendment. There were two district court cases, but they got overturned on appeal. So it was kind of like it was constitutionally inert, right? Like if you raised a challenge under the Second Amendment and you said, hey, look, you know, this new, this 1934 federal law makes it illegal for me to own this machine gun without a license that violates my Second Amendment rights. You know, you, the court would ask, are you a member of an organized militia? And the answer would be no. And they'd be like, well, that's the end of the case because that's all that's protected, right? And so really the Second Amendment had this huge rhetorical and political effect, especially in the second half of the, of the 20th century. But as a matter of law, it just didn't mean anything, right? Nothing was getting struck down. So to answer your question, what Heller did was make the Second Amendment as a matter of law kind of alive. 
because if the right has to do the right to keep and bear arms, that is, has to do with things like self-defense against criminals, then it's the kind of right that a lot of people can invoke, right? Like, you know, it does hamper your ability to defend yourself against criminals if you can't have a handgun in your home, for example, right? That claim doesn't really register if it's just about the organized militia, because Dick Heller, the plaintiff in that case, was, the mem was not a member of any organized militia, but he was a person who wanted a gun to defend himself. So after Heller, what we've seen is this huge wave of Second Amendment litigation as cases being filed, um, something like probably approaching 2000 now, but at least 1500 cases in the last 12 years, raising all kinds of challenges to all kinds of state, local, and federal gun regulations. Um, the vast majority of those have failed, which is to say that still very few laws are being struck down on, on Second Amendment grounds, but Heller kind of made it a possibility. And to answer your second question about McDonald, without getting <clears throat> really too deep into the weeds here, because um, a very good sort of technical legal question, um, the Bill of Rights or any, any federal constitutional right technically applies in the first instance only against the federal government. That is, the Second Amendment only initially restricts federal law, right? Which in the District of Columbia, that makes sense. The District of Columbia is federal. It's, you know, it's not its own state. Um, but after Heller, there was nothing that said Chicago, for example, or North Carolina, where I live, couldn't do whatever it wanted to do with regard to uh, the Second Amendment. Now, through a process called incorporation, which is a little misleading because it sounds like we're talking about corporate law, but this is also constitutional law, the Supreme Court has made almost all of the guarantees in the Constitution applicable against states and local governments, just like they apply against the federal government. So the question in McDonald was exactly that. Okay, Supreme Court, you told us in Heller that the Second Amendment protects this private right and it protects it against federal legislation, how about state and local legislation? And in, in, in McDonald, um, the challenge was to a Chicago law, which looked almost identical to Washington's, again, a municipal handgun ban. They were the only two cities, only two major cities anyway, that had those kinds of laws. So the plaintiffs chose, you know, the extreme cases here. Um, and, they, and, and the question was presented to the court, okay, does this, this right that you just recognized in Heller, does that apply against states and local governments? Which is a hugely significant question because the vast majority of gun regulation is done at the state and local level. It's not coming from Congress. There's very few gun regulations that come from Congress, the important ones, but there's not a lot of them. A lot of this stuff, whether it's public carry requirements or permitting requirements, licensing, training, all that kind of stuff happens at the state level. And what McDonald said was, yep, the right we announced in Heller applies to all those regulations too. So a lot, most of the, of the litigation that we see has to do with those kind of state and local state and local regulations. This feels like my, my con law class we're talking through here. This is like first year, first year constitutional law at Duke. So, um, you know, a free, free tour of the curriculum here. <laughs> I totally appreciate it. Thank you. Um, mm -hmm. You mentioned how this had, you know, recently come alive, given that it's a relatively recent new questions that we're dealing with. What major questions still need to be answered concerning these Second Amendment um, areas and what, what gray areas still need to be defined here? I guess I, I, the way I think about it, it sort of breaks out into two categories of questions. So the first one, and hopefully this isn't too much sort of legal in the weeds, is what I, what I think of as like the methodological question, which is, okay, you know you've got this new Second Amendment right that Heller announced, and you know that it limits the government's ability to pass gun regulations. But the question is like, how? Like, what's the test? How do you evaluate whether any particular gun law is or is not constitutional, right? 
And that's just what constitutional doctrine is all about, whether it's free speech or free exercise, the establishment clause. There's all these rules and tests that, again, anybody in law school will be familiar with, with strict scrutiny or intermediate scrutiny or whatever time, place, and manner restrictions. And they all got like little tests, right? Um, the Second Amendment, because it really only kind of came online 12 years ago, didn't didn't, it wasn't born with this big doctrinal machinery alongside it, right? It, it needed to, it's kind of mixing metaphors there, birth and machinery, but you, you, you know what I mean? It didn't have like a whole handbook of like, okay, here's what's okay and here's what's not. All we knew after Heller and McDonald is you can't have a full citywide ban on handguns in the home. But like I mentioned, those were outlier laws. There was only two cities that had those kinds of laws. The vast majority of things that people care about are things like, okay, you can have a handgun in your home. I mean, in most parts of the country, you could do that anyway. But what if you want to carry it in public? What if you want to carry it open? What if you want to carry it concealed? Um, what if you want to carry around an AR-15 as opposed to a handgun, right? Like, what if you want to have a machine gun in your home? Or what if you've been convicted of a crime of domestic violence? What if you are, you know, um, uh, undocumented? Like, these are all categories of people and guns that are regulated. And what we didn't have from Heller or McDonald and still don't really have from the Supreme Court is like the test. Like what's the methodology? How do you separate the constitutional from the unconstitutional? I would say there's sort of two different schools of thought <clears throat> that are emerging there. And we may be at a moment right now, given the recent changes in the Supreme Court. You know, we're recording this late 2020. The, the, the uh, membership in the court has changed significantly during the Trump presidency. Um, the standard test that most lower courts apply is kind of a two-part test, which again, I don't want to get into the weeds of it, or although I'm actually I do want to get into the weeds of it, I'll try not to. Um, but, but basically it asks two questions. One, is this person or gun or activity that's being regulated, is it the kind of thing that falls inside the Second Amendment at all? Just a threshold question, is this gun an arm for purposes of the Second Amendment? We do the same thing with regard to speech, right? Like if somebody you know, is burning a flag. We ask, is burning a flag count as speech, right? If somebody's, you know, speeding in a 35, um, uh, 35 mile an hour um, uh, zone and they say, I'm doing this to protest speed limits, like, do we can't consider that speech, right? Same thing for guns, right? Like, if you're carrying around a handgun, everybody says, of course, that's an arm, might be regulated, but it certainly counts. Whereas if somebody's carrying around like a nuclear detonator, right? Like, you might say, well, that doesn't even count as an arm, right? And there's all kinds of litigation about this. I mean, there's even a case. It's before Heller, but there's a case about whether nunchucks count as arms for purposes of the Second Amendment. So lots of questions at that threshold. And same with things like concealed carrying. Does that count as keeping and bearing? So on and so forth. If you get past that first hurdle, that first threshold, the second question in this two-part test is basically simplifying a little, but it's basically, does the government have enough evidence to show that it's that, that banning or restricting or whatever the government's trying to do is justified. Uh, it's oversimplifying a lot, but it's basically saying, okay, yes, handguns count as guns, so we're past step one, but the government might still have a good reason to say you can't carry them in schools, right? That kind of thing. So that's the two-part test. So it's, it's focused on sort of first, what's the boundaries? Like, how do we know if we're in the right or not? And if we're in the right, does the government have a good enough reason to restrict you? So that involves courts asking questions about like, is this gun law effective? Or do we have enough evidence to think this gun law is effective? There is an alternative test though. This is the methodological alternative, which is really ascendant, especially among judges who identify as originalists, um, tends to be judges who identify as conservative. And their approach is sometimes called the text history and tradition approach, which is to say that we evaluate the constitutionality of gun laws, not based on their effectiveness, or any of this sort of consideration of modern empirics or anything, 
but really are they laws that um, are either textually justified, that is by the 27 words of the second amendment or have sufficient sort of historical and traditional provenance. So if, for example, if you're evaluating whether it's okay to keep guns out of the hands of felons, you would ask, well, did the framers keep guns out of the hands of felons, right? Now that test, as I say, it's, it's associated with a certain kind of judge, Judge Kavanaugh, now Justice Kavanaugh is one of the pioneers of this test. Um, I personally think it has some complications. It's just very hard to make those kinds of analogies across time. Like it's tough to know what the framers would have thought about the kinds of weapons we have today. Um, it's tough even to say what they would have done or wouldn't have done with regard to what we today call felons because it's not a category that they had. So there's some complications. That's the big thing. That's the big methodological dispute. I would say that's the most important gray area. Um, and then just very quickly on the sort of what I think of as the substantive questions, there's lots of different kinds of gun laws <clears throat> or aspects of the right to keep and bear arms that are just remain unclear. Um, the Supreme Court has not clearly said that the right to keep and bear arms extends outside your home. Because remember in Heller and McDonald, um, the challenge was just person want to have a handgun in their house. Well, what if the person wants to have a handgun, you know, on their way to work? Maybe they have to park in a dark parking lot and they feel threatened there. You know, so the right to self-defense can follow you wherever you are. Um, that's a big, big, big question, whether and how the right extends outside the home. Um, classes of people who are prohibited under federal law, including felons and people adjudicated mentally ill, is a very contested territory because, you know, there are many felons who are nonviolent. Um, you know, we have such a horrific record in this country of over-criminalizing activity. Um, people who have felony convictions that challenge, you know, follow them for the rest of their lives, should they really be barred from possessing guns for the rest of their lives? The example people often use is Martha Stewart. She's a felon. <laughs> she can't have a gun. Does it make the world any safer that Martha Stewart is disarmed? Probably not. Um, and what about other people, even if they have committed violent crimes, shouldn't they have a chance to, you know, um, to redeem uh, to redeem that right at some point? Ditto for people with mental illness and so on and so forth. So lots of contested territory there. Um, I could go on and on. I am going on and on. Um, uh, so I should I should stop. But I would say there's a lot of gray areas, and that's where a lot of the activity is happening right now. Thank you so much. And in terms of the legal nitty gritty, please feel free to get into that. I think okay, it's great. so interesting and educating um getting right into that you wrote about the idea of a right to not keep and bear arms where does this idea come from and what implications could it have for gun regulations and these questions it's it's really interesting to see how that article has sort of aged so um you know at the time i wrote it i was struck by something which again i think goes underappreciated in the gun debate which is the degree to which we have laws that specifically protect guns so i think people often think about well, the gun debate is about whether you want to have the government involved or not, and that the sort of the sort of libertarian or what you might call laissez-faire, whatever view is the gun rights view, and that the you know gun regulator, the anti-gun people are the pro-government regulation people. That's often true because it's often you know people are pushing for gun regulation, they're pushing for government involvement. But actually, it turns out that there are a lot of laws out there which kind of give special protections to guns above and beyond what other kinds of um, commodities or even constitutional rights get. And one set of laws that I thought were particularly interesting are laws that make it illegal for private employers. So we're not talking about the government here, but for private employers to forbid guns on their property. So just to unpack that, um, uh, these are often called take your gun to work laws or parking lot laws. And they basically say that 
any private company, university, whatever, maybe there's exceptions in some of them for universities, I don't know, but pick Stanford, right? Couldn't tell their employees, don't bring your guns. The, the, the employees have a right to take the guns, even if the private employer doesn't want them to. And that sets up kind of the opposite, where you have actually law is like intervening in favor of guns, and it's against private property interests, right? Like, if I'm a private business owner, I might want to exclude guns. I might feel like my property's safer without them, just like some people feel safer with them. Um, but the law in some places kind of overrides that decision. And so the more I kind of picked at it, the more I just thought that was troubling. Um, and so I ended up making an argument that's basically what I think of as a libertarian argument, although people often accuse this of being an anti-gun thing. It's not an anti-gun thing. It's just a, it's, a, it's a private property argument of anything else, which is just that as with the vast majority of things, um, especially those that impact your personal safety, this should be your choice. Um, and that you shouldn't have to, because the government says you have to, allow a gun onto your private property. There are some extreme examples too, um, regulations which probably never really enforced, um, but that uh, 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 Kennesaw, Georgia is the one that stands out to me because there actually was some litigation there, which actually said that anybody in the town, anybody living in the town had to have a gun which, you know, effectively would force you to have a gun in your private home. Now, are they enforcing that or fining people who don't? Of course not. It's, you know, there's no way. But still, that sends a certain kind of signal, um, some ex expressive effect. So I kind of started arguing against that view. That's the sort of, you know, what inspired the article. The broader thing, I think, is just to try to bring into focus that when we talk about gun rights and regulation, I think people often think that it's like rights are on one side and regulations on the other side, that it's like, the gun rights, Second Amendment, right team bear arms is on one side, and the other side is just like policy interests or whatever. And normally the Constitution trumps policy interests, right? Like, you know, the Nazis get to march in Skokie, even though it's bad policy and people don't want them to have to do it because they have a free speech right to do that, right? Same thing for the Second Amendment. It's going to take some policy decisions off the table. I think that's understandable. I think that's right. But I also think that we sometimes miss the fact that even people who are asserting what might feel like a regulatory interest are asserting rights. Um, they're, they're, they're talking about the language of constitutional rights. We've seen this a lot, I think, in recent years since I wrote the article, um, where you have, I mean, to, just to pick one, you know, the organization March for Our Lives is asserting a right. They're asserting a right not to be shot. They're asserting a right to be safe, to, to be educated, right, to in other places for people to be able to worship in safety. That's There's a constitutional right there. That's called the right to free exercise, right? People want to be able to vote without being intimidated by people bearing guns at the polls. You know, the Michigan legislature last year had to close down because armed citizens were parading around inside the legislative chamber with um, uh, with, uh, with weapons, right? Like that's interfering directly with other people's rights to self-govern. So at a broader level, I guess what I was trying to do is try to suggest this is really rights on both sides. It's not just like rights against policy interests. It's like, how do you, how do you weigh these competing, competing rights? That doesn't mean that the regulators or the anti-gun, if you want to call them that, I'm, I'm signaling scare quotes here. I was not great in an audio medium, but uh, the anti-gun people, um, uh, you know, they're not, you know, they're, they're, they're not, it's not gun, anti-gun animus that motivates most people. It's a desire to protect their own constitutional interests. They have the same interest, frankly, as those who want to carry guns, which is their personal safety and that of their, that of their loved ones. So it's trying to put those things both into, into view, which is precisely, I think, what makes the gun debate so emotional and, 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 and so hard. Wow. So speaking now on the future of gun regulation in the Second Amendment, how do you reconcile the differences between the realities of the Second Amendment and what people might think it does or doesn't protect? And what can be done to return to the true history, as you're telling me, of the Second Amendment? 
It's a really, really hard question. I wish I had a good answer to this one. It's in some respects like my life's work to figure out an answer to that question. Um, so I don't fully have one now. Um, but, but I would say, um, and, we, and my, my co-author Daryl Miller and I try to make this argument in our book that um, the one thing we have to stop doing is treating everything like an, like an absolute and everything like an extreme and everything like there's, uh, you know, in order to support rights, you have to reject regulation and, uh, and vice versa. Like those are, those are the false choices we have to take off the table. Um, and I mean that for all sides of the gun debate, right? Like would-be regulators. I think need to stop treating the Second Amendment as a boogeyman, and I think that gun rights advocates need to stop treating it as if it's some kind of invincible champion that wipes off all kinds of gun regulations. We actually have to focus on the hard stuff. Now, when we do that, I say hard stuff, the contested territory, the gray areas that you were asking me about before. Like, once you do that and you ask like concrete questions, my experience has been, it's actually easier to find common ground than you might think. Like, if you ask people the question, do you support gun rights or gun regulation? they'll have an answer, right? Yeah, I'm gun regulation, I'm guns, whatever. Like you'll sometimes get people on academic panels ask, do you support the second amendment, right? Ask me that, and you know, as a, as a constitutional law professor, nobody ever asks that about the first amendment or the 14th amendment or federalism or separation of powers. Like, of course I support that, which is disagreements about what those things mean, but we have to get past the like, you know, the, I don't know what, I don't know if it's tribalism or what it is about it kind of on, on, on both sides and ask like concrete questions. So if I ask somebody, do you support gun regulation? Their answer might be no. But then I might ask, well, what about background checks, you know, for purchase? 90% of Americans support background checks, right? So then the answer might be, oh yeah, well, I support those. I'm like, okay, then we can have something to work with, right? Someone else I might ask, do you support gun rights? And they might say, no. I say, well, what about the right of a person to have a handgun in their home with a license to defend themselves against criminals. And then most people will say, oh yeah, I support that. And so we kind of focus on like the actual concrete questions. Sometimes we actually find a lot more overlap. Um, and that's kind of getting away from the extremism. And you know, as Daryl and I argue in the book, that's kind of where the constitutional law is right now. It protects the right, but it also leaves space for regulation, um, takes off the extreme stuff like no handgun bans but it also allows like the mainstream stuff, like, you know, you have to get a license if you're gonna carry in public, for example, which is the law in some states, not all, but in some states. So like, that's where we kind of need to focus, almost kind of get more granular. On the history, um, that's gonna be a long project. Um, you know, I think there are competing views about how to read the history, um, but the one thing we have to get away from, I think is the notion that, that gun regulation is like a modern invention, like the Brady campaign came up with it or something like that. You know, an example I often give <clears throat> in which we discuss in the book is um, the, the sort of famous gun towns, like the cow towns of like, you know, Dodge City and uh, 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 Dodge City is actually a good example um, uh, uh, or Tombstone, Arizona for that matter. They, they made it illegal to carry a gun in city limits, right? Like if you got to this and, and actually the, the shootout at the OK Corral was sparked in part by the Ert brothers efforts to enforce that very regulation, right? And if people think about stuff like that, it doesn't mean you have to think that's good principle or not. I mean, today it's unconstitutional after Heller to have that kind of a law, but it at least lets you think, oh, okay. It's not that, you know, prior generations, whether it's the framers or whether it's the supposedly wild west, it's not that this was unknown to them either, right? Like we're not inventing anything new to be able to say, yeah, certain guns in certain places are forbidden or should be forbidden. And we just have to figure out kind of what those places what those places are. So, you know, I, I've been working on this stuff for, I guess, 12 years now, and I still have some hope for the future. Fingers crossed that we can have better conversations about it going forward and find some common ground. Thank you so, so much for coming on the podcast, Dr. Bloker. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you.